Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or Twitter using the handle at KickbackGAP. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Monica Bauer, who's an associate professor at the Department of Political Science at the University of Gothenburg, and also an affiliate there with the Quality of Government Institute. Monica, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So why don't you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about your own background in anti-corruption research, how you came to this topic, and the major corruption-related subjects that you're focusing on in your research. Right. I started off actually uh, quite some time ago as a researcher on climate change policies. Uh, I worked in Tanzania and also in Sweden on climate change policies. And I tended to work a lot with uh, natural scientists. And they kept saying to me that we have a lot of technical solutions to poverty problems. We have a lot of economically viable solutions to these problems. But what we do lack is the political will to do so. And they asked me, uh, Monica, how do you get political will? And I actually did not know the answer to that question. And I was a student of political science. And, and it struck me that one of the things that actually creates political will is the possibility to implement the policies that we install. So political will is not only about having policies in place or electing the right politicians. It's also to have rules and laws implemented and to create laws that are actually possible to implement. So my interest was not primarily, I guess, on corruption, but on how to make systems work and how to make system work towards socially desirable goals, such as reducing poverty, uh, decreasing climate change. Etc. So what led you from that general interest into government effectiveness to an interest more specifically in corruption? We started off the Quality of Government Institute in 2004 or maybe 2007. And since then, I've been working to build this research group on quality of government issues and corruption. And I guess corruption is one part of the quality of government puzzle. And I came to be more interested in, in that particular part of the quality of government puzzle because I feel it's uh, surprisingly consequential for the de development of policies and also for the implementation of, of policies and policies that I cared about, uh, such as reducing poverty or mitigating climate change. So what particular aspects of corruption have you been focused on in your research? I know that you do many things, but maybe can you point it to a, a couple of the topics that have really captured your interest over the last several years as you've been working on the general topic of corruption and anti-corruption? 
I guess there are particularly three topics that I find interesting right now. First of all, I worked a lot on transparency and the effect of transparency on reducing corruption. And we have surprisingly inconsistent findings in terms of how whether or not transparency and also democracy more broadly uh, reduce corruption. And that's a puzzle to me that I've been working on. I also done quite a bit of work on different forms of corruption because typically uh, research, or at least the quantitative research that we have on causes and consequences of corruption are driven by this broad indices, the ICRG, the World Bank Governance Indicators, TICPI. Uh, and what we essence, in essence are studying is averages. So we know what particular anti-corruption policy is reducing average levels of corruption. But we do not know if a particular anti-corruption measure is increasing a certain form of corruption, while on the other hand decreasing another. And so we may, may erroneously conclude that an anti-corruption measure is ineffective. While in essence, maybe it does have some effects on some forms of corruption. So I did quite a lot of work also on distinguishing between different forms of corruption. For me, corruption is very much an umbrella term that captures problems that vary dramatically in kind. And I find it interesting to figure out what these dimensions are that are relevant uh, in, in different forms of corruption. And I also now uh, just recently got a grant from the Swedish Research Council to study the effect of gender and female representation on corruption. This is a topic that I've worked on uh, in a couple of papers before, but I will spend the last uh, three years uh, working on that topic. Well, great. So I was saying maybe I can ask you a little bit uh, about each of those topics, and maybe we can start with the first one. You mentioned transparency, and you made this intriguing statement, at least I think many of our listeners will find it intriguing, that the evidence on the effectiveness of transparency in reducing corruption is maybe surprisingly mixed. And I would love to hear a little bit more about what we know in this area, what the research looks like and what the findings are, because after all, I mean, the most probably the best known anti-corruption organization in the world has transparency right in the name, Transparency International. Uh, we have this idea that sunlight is the best of disinfectants, as I believe the US Justice uh, Louis Brandeis once said. So there's this idea out there that transparency can be a very powerful anti-corruption tool, and yet you say the existing empirical evidence on the efficacy of transparency and reducing corruption is maybe not as clear as some of those basic intuitions might suggest. Can you can you unpack that a little bit more and explain what we do know or what we don't know about the relationship between transparency and corruption? First of all, transparency is oftentimes effective in reducing corruption. So so I guess the, the standard finding is that transparency does have an effect on reducing corruption. Some of the studies that I've done in particular ones shows that transparency is not always effective in reducing corruption. And that happens particularly in the context where corruption is systemic. And what can happen in settings where corruption is systemic is that you open up the system, you expose a lot of corruption, and that installs a sense of hopelessness in people. So you, you think that there's no point in mobilizing against corruption, much along in the collective action logic, that no one else will mobilize. So why should I mobilize? And secondly, you do not expect the system to be responsive to mobilization. So typically what transparency does is that you have a good sense of the extent of corruption at the petty, petty level where you encounter street level bureaucrats. But the grand corruption becomes much more visible 
in a transparent system. And that also highlights the fact that even if you are discontent with the way things work, there's no one at the top that will respond to your pressure. And, and therefore, uh, you might simply give up. That's interesting and it seems uh, reasonable to me. It, it's a little bit abstract in general. Can you illustrate, are there any particular examples that you like to point to where you see this? The first phenomenon you described sounds a little bit like a demoralization effect, that transparency in a systemically corrupt system makes it just how ba- obvious how bad the problem is and causes people to kind of lose hope. And the second phenomenon you described seems to be kind of in the same ballpark, that the systemically corrupt system, no one's doing anything about it. We find out information about how bad the corruption is, and it doesn't actually contribute to making the system better. So are there examples you can point to where there's been an increase in transparency, but the result has been greater demoralization regarding corruption rather than more effective action to combat corruption? So the study that we did was at the aggregate level. Mm -hmm. So that was a a quantitative study where we saw average effects, right? So this particular study did not give any good examples towards the things that you point. I know that there are experimental studies that shows uh, more in detail how that works. Our studies did not, unfortunately, give any good examples of that. But but we do have a, a lot of examples of how corruption in general can, or perceptions of widespread corruption can demobilize people. Because you think that, why should I, you know, why should I do something when nobody else does it? And I, I think that logic resonates with people when we ask them, right? We ask people, why did you not mobilize? You say that you care about corruption. Why did you not do anything? And a frequent answer is it will not make a difference. So that, that strikes me as, as persuasive. I think the thing I want to ask a little bit further about, and this is maybe something our listeners might wonder as well, is I get that, but I'm not sure. I, I, I would need to know a little bit more to understand why increasing transparency would exacerbate that effect. So you said your study was at the aggregate. In your study, what was your measure of transparency and then what was your measure of corruption what where what were the indicators that you used to find that increasing transparency could have this paradoxical or perverse corruption increasing impact right so the dependent variables in the study was political mobilization so political mm-hmm. interest and political mobilization also political trust and the independent variable was aggregate never a country level transparency and the interaction term then was corruption sorry what did you use to measure i know you aggregated the country level what are the kinds of things that you were aggregating when you're measuring country level corruption like what does that mean we used the, the World Bank governance indicators of terms of corruption, mm. and that's precisely the type of measure that I've been criticizing for being a bit blunt, right? And I think that applies to our study as well. I think that in, in order to move forward to, to understand the effects of transparency and also the effects of other kinds of anti-corruption measures, we need to have measures of corruption that are much more precise than that, right? We need to f- allow anti-corruption measures, the effect of anti-corruption measures to vary across forms of corruption. Mm -hmm. And I think that's extremely important because if you think about democracy, for instance, democracy has clearly, if you you think about well-established democracies, the Denmarks, the Swedens, we have uh, very little petty corruption. No one pays a bribe in order to get public services. But grand corruption we do have, right? We have corruption in public procurement, for instance. So we have politicians that that skims of money to build garages and pools. And, And clearly democracy seems much more effective in reducing petty corruption or need corruption uh, than than greed corruption. So even in well-established democracies, we have difficulties reducing certain forms of corruption rather than others. And I think that's 
one of the most important ways forward if we want to understand the effects of transparency, for instance, in on a more detailed level than these aggregate cross-country studies that we've done. So great. So I think that provides a natural transition into the second of the three topics that you mentioned you focused on in your research, and that's disaggregating the concept of uh, corruption. So I think you'll encounter, I expect you will encounter very little resistance to the general claim that corruption is a broad umbrella category that includes lots of different things. I mean, people have been making this point since the very beginning, that there's petty corruption, there's grand corruption, there's political corruption, there's administrative corruption, there's like all sorts of different kinds of corruption. So I think that's a that's generally well accepted. I think the reason a lot of scholars continue to use measures like the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index and the Worldwide Governance Indicators measures, for example, is not because people are not aware that those indexes lump together many different forms of corruption, but because we've not yet been able to develop better, more refined indexes that can provide comparable data on specific forms of corruption that we can use to compare across countries. So I imagine part of your agenda here is going to be to identify better measures. So can you say a little bit about that? So what if we want to compare levels of grand corruption or the skimming to build you know, swimming pools and fancy houses that you point out uh, persists even in places where the levels of petty bribery at the administrative level are very low, what could we use? How could we generate such data? Or is that the wrong way to frame the question? No, I think it's the exact right way to frame the question. I think we need better measures of specific kinds of corruption because there's this debate about whether we should use perception-based measures, objective-based measures. But we need to also think about what exactly, what are the forms of corruption that we try to measure. And we did try to develop some of more precise measures in the EQI measure, that's a regional service on European countries, where we fielded measures of need and greed corruption in the most recent wave. Sorry, can I interrupt you there? Can you ele- So the EQI, you should tell our listeners what that stands for. The EQI is a regional survey. It's a public opinion survey on European regions. And we would have a representative sample of citizens in different European regions. And it's about impartiality, corruption, and public service delivery satisfaction. So, and then you use this terminology of need and greed corruption. I know this comes from some work that you've done and others have used this terminology as well. Again, not all of our listeners might be immediately familiar with what you mean by those terms. So can you unpack that a little bit and explain the distinction that you want to draw between need corruption and greed corruption? The distinction is based on the basic motivation for engaging in corruption, where need corruption is the type of corruption that you use to get services that you would be entitled to. Uh, the typical example is a parent that pays a bribe uh, in order to secure access to health care for his or her child. While greed corruption is corruption that you use to get specific or illicit advantages, you could imagine a public procurement situation where the company does not have the most competitive bid, but where you use bribery in order to secure access to, to the contract. So that sounds like it's got it. <laughs> A relationship with maybe parallels or at least closely parallels the distinction that's sometimes drawn between collusive corruption and extortive corruption, or the economist Andre Schleifer and um, his his collaborator uh, Vishni, I'm forgetting his first name, talk about corruption with theft and corruption without theft. Is it based? Are we basically talking about similar kind of distinction here? That in one case you're paying a bribe 
to get something you should have gotten anyway, and in another case, you're paying a bribe to get something to which you are not entitled? Right. There are overlaps between these different forms of corruption, clearly, but the, the collusive extortive distinction builds on uh, the relationship between the people that are involved. And I think that it makes sense to pay more attention to the motivation for engaging in corruption, because the motivation for engaging in corruption, I believe, is directly consequential for, for instance, the willingness to mobilize against corruption. If you look at sites such as the I paid a bribe sites where people report on having to pay a bribe, you're typically stopped by police, you did not bribe too fast, you have to pay a bribe anyway. And that upsets people. And they are not they are not afraid to share that experience because they had to do it, right? Nobody can blame them for doing it. And, and that form of corruption thereby can become much more transparent than when you know that you got an advantage that you should not have gotten. That makes people less likely to want to share it. It becomes more secretive and also more difficult, I think, to fight. Great. So with that conceptual clarification, which is helpful, turning back to the study that you did, how did you, I'll use the jargony social science language here, how did you operationalize in the context of the study this difference between need and greed corruption? So to get back to the question I initially asked, I get this conceptual distinction, but if we want to go to the data and measure what you're calling need corruption independently from measures of greed corruption, see how they might move separately or together, how do you do this in the context of your European survey? What measures did you use to provide a, a proxy for need corruption? What measures did you use to, to provide a proxy for uh, greed corruption? Right. In general, we asked about whether or not uh, citizens feel that they were entitled to service or where, whether people in general used corruption in order to get stuff that they needed compared to whether or not they get got it to get advantages that they should not have gotten. Uh, so we asked direct questions. It was formulated in a better and smarter way than than I can convey uh, right on the top out of the top of my head. We fielded this a year ago, but I think it's useful because it begins to get us get us to an operationalization of different forms of corruption. And now this need and greed distinction is just one of many that I think would be useful to try to measure more closely because what i think is the problem is that we have these everybody knows that there are different forms of corruption obviously right we have a laundry list of of, of different forms of corruption but we do not really know along what di dimensions that they vary so the motivation to engage in in corruption could be one dimension the relationship between the actors could be one dimension the other dimension could be at what level that would be the petty and grand right is it in low level bureaucracy or is it high level officials and i think it's useful to think about these dimensions of corruption in pairs to make it more theoretically founded what kinds of dimensions that we have as opposed to just describing or, or doing a laundry list of different forms of corruption, because that makes it, at least for a researcher, more analytically useful. Great. <clears throat> that, that seems sensible to me. Let me just ask one more question about the need-greed distinction, which I find very intriguing before we talk a little bit about the third line that you're pursuing in your research right now. So when you conduct these surveys and you try to differentiate between need and greed corruption by asking some form of the question, did you have to do this to get something that you needed or were you doing this to advance your own interests, I suppose a skeptic might hear that description and say, well, isn't it a common phenomenon that people will rationalize their corrupt behavior 
by characterizing, even to themselves, what's actually what you want to call greed corruption is need corruption. So you might tell yourself, I really was entitled to that public contract. My company would go under if I didn't get it. So I paid a bribe to keep the company going. But in fact, you reap huge profits from having gotten the contract. And we can replicate numerous examples of this. So I guess the question becomes, I can see in the abstract conceptually what the line between need corruption and greed corruption means. But in practice, doesn't this get a lot fuzzier and messier even in people's own heads, whether they're doing something out of need or out of greed. Definitely, and I think that's the main problem because this is the, a dimension, right? It's not a dichotomy. People do vary, or, or instances of corruption do vary along these dimensions. And the endpoints are perhaps clear, but in the middle it becomes more messy. But, but you also touch upon a, an important thing on, on how to measure it, right? So what we did was actually asking people to assess the extent to which these different forms of corruption was, was common in their area, just to avoid this social desirability bias that, that you point out. When you say social desirability bias, you mean the tendency of people to give the answers that they think the people conducting the survey want to hear. So. Right. You can also rash, always rationalize what you do. And, and I think that, that was, that's what most people would do in that situation. Great. So there's so much more we could say about that conceptual issue and that measurement issue. But, but I do want to ask you about the third line of your research that you mentioned earlier, which is the exploring the relationship between gender and female representation in government, in the labor force, and other contexts, uh, and how this relates to corruption, anti-corruption. So I, there's a research tradition here. People investigated this, this question for a while. I want to hear about your recent contributions, but maybe since not all of our listeners will be broadly familiar with this line of scholarly inquiry, can you set the stage a little bit by providing a little bit of background on what we know or what people have been asking with respect to the relationship between gender and corruption. Yes, I think this is a particularly interesting area of research because from the last 10 years that we've been studying corruption, the strong association between the share of women in elected office and lower levels of corruption is one of the most consistent findings that we have. And originally, I'm, I'm generally interested in gender issues, but originally from my corruption research agenda, that's why I came to become even more interested in this topic, because we do not have that many factors that are consistently associated with lower levels of corruption. And most importantly, that is also uh, manipulable in some sense. We know that small island states, for instance, have less corruption, or you have to have a certain colonial origin, you have less corruption, but these are things that we cannot influence. And at least women representation is something that we, at least in theory, are able to change in the medium uh, term. So to figure out whether those kinds of changes would have anti-corruption effect, putting aside for the, the fact that many people would argue that increasing the representation of women in government is good for separate reasons, whether or not it has any effect on corruption. But if we're focusing specifically on the corruption-reducing effect, I suppose to be able to have a sense of whether it would have such an effect, we would need to say a little bit more about the mechanism, right? So we see a correlation in the raw data. Even if we do things like control for per capita GDP, for example, it appears that those mainly democracies, because if we're looking at representation in parliament, we're, we're mostly limited to democracies. So those countries that have higher 
uh, female representation in parliament than one would predict from, say, GDP, seem to be on average perceived as less corrupt than uh, those countries that have lower than average levels of women in parliament compared to what would be predicted by their GDP. Okay, so we see that in the data. Why does that happen? Or what are some of the leading theories for why that might happen? Because I imagine some of those theories would suggest that if you intervened at the policy level to up the number of women in parliament, that would have an effect. But other potential explanations for the correlation would imply that these kinds of policy interventions wouldn't make any difference. So say a little bit about what the leading candidate explanations are for this correlation that we see in the aggregate data. So the, the research has done a, a really good job in laying out the theories for why this may be so. Not all of them are sufficiently tested, but there are a couple of theories that most of them, I would say, depart from some, in some way from the idea that women are more strongly socialized into having a demand for anti-corruption reform. Uh, one theory that is particularly prominent here is the risk aversion theory. So as long as corruption is a crime, women are less likely to take risks than men, and therefore they are less likely to engage in corruption. Uh, also, the actual risk for women candidates to engage in corruption is typically higher because they tend to be more strongly punished by the electorate. So this is a very plausible theory in many ways. I, I guess I have two concerns about this theory. The first one is that even if women on average are more risk averse than men, I'm not sure to what extent it applies to elite women. So I think that the differences between men and female candidates at the elite level will be different or smaller. So maybe Hillary Clinton is more risk averse than, than Bill Clinton, but I don't think that the difference is that great. And the second concern is perhaps even more important, and that's the fact that fighting corruption in most contexts is extremely risky. It's extremely dangerous. And I find it difficult to understand why a person that is risk averse would be willing to take on this task. But then there are also other theories that might explain it. So one of them are uh, the fact that women would be more traditionally more responsible for caretaking tasks, caring for children, caring for elderly, and also that the elite women that assume office are particularly dependent upon uh, what could be called a state on track. Some of my colleagues have worked on this. So that means that women would be more likely to want to reduce corruption in elderly care, in health care, and makes the system work because they are dependent upon them, upon these uh, issues. They are expected to promote these issues by the electorate, but also because they are dependent upon them, uh, stayed on track in order to, for the system to work for them and in order to be able to work uh, at all, I should say. That all is consistent with my understanding of this literature. Let me mention a couple of other hypotheses that I've seen in the literature. I would love to get your reaction as to how plausible these explanations might be for the correlation one sees in the aggregate data. I think maybe the most skeptical explanation, that is the explanation that evinces the most skepticism for the idea there's any real causal relationship, has posited that really what we're seeing is that societies are, that are more, call it, liberal slash modern tend to both have greater female representation in elite positions and have lower corruption, but not because the former is causally related to the latter. 
It's just that more liberal and modern societies look different from, call them more uh, traditionalist political cultures, uh, less liberal political cultures. And so that's one explanation. That I, I mentioned that because if that were true, then the prescription that you suggested earlier that follows from this data might not actually work. Upping, engaging in policy interventions, whether it's the form of quotas or recruiting women to want to run for office or what have you, might not actually have any corruption-reducing effect if the prevalence of women in government is not actually a cause of lower corruption, but that both of those things are simply consequences of some underlying feature of society. So I don't know anything about this one way or the other. I'm not advocating that position, but I've seen that represented in the literature that asserts that if you control for various measures of liberalism or modernity, this correlation between women in government and perceived lower perceived corruption goes away. A second line of argument that I've seen, I think it's related to something that you said earlier, but might be a little bit different. Political systems that are very much based on cronyism, or what we might call old boys networks, and the gendered language there is, I think, appropriate in this case, will tend to be more corrupt because it's all about personal relationships, but also make it harder for people who have not been part of the traditional political networks to break in. So when you have a system that's less dependent on relationships and networks in order to get entry into politics, you will get less corruption, not because there are more women, but just because there's less cronyism, but you'll also get more entry by women or other people who are not part of the traditional old-fashioned elite network. So these two hypotheses would be, I imagine, could be framed as challenges to the notion that there's a causal relationship between the representation of women in government and lower perceived corruption. Both of them suggest that it's really some other feature of the political system that explains both of those things. So again, I don't have a view on this. It's not something that I've researched, but I've seen those arguments out there. Since you are an expert in this area and have researched this, what is your reaction to those proposed alternative explanations for the correlations we see in the aggregate data? I do agree with you that the former is a potential reason to suspect that the reason is not the the relationship is not causal. The second one that you mentioned is what what would we call maybe a marginalization theory that the reason why women are not participating in corruption is because they are not allowed to. Uh, they are not included in the right networks. And I don't think that the reason why they are not allowed to participate in corruption is necessarily that that they are women, but they are simply less networked and less trusted by the insiders of the political system. And since corruption at that level very much builds on trust, they are simply not trusted enough to participate in corruption. I think that's potentially a reason why women are reducing corruption, because they are not networked enough to participate. I think that would speak to women in office reducing corruption and the relationship actually being causal. But the liberal theories that you that you mentioned, I think, is more of a challenge. And that points to what I think is one of the main challenges in this field of research is that most of the knowledge that we have, with a few notable exceptions, are built on associations. So we know that countries that are have more women in parliament are also less corrupt. But we would need more close close causal analysis to be able to tease out if the effect is actually causal. We do have some good examples of that, but we would definitely need more because we also know that low corrupt systems 
have more meritocratic recruitment and if recruitment is more meritocratic you would expect more women to assume office and that would mean that actually low corruption causes more women in office rather than the other way around uh, so i think these are some of the issues that i hope to be able to work on now for the coming three years where i will work on this i also think that it does matter the explanations for why women reduce corruption. So some would think that it has more to do with a, uh, an academic interest in finding out exactly why it works. If we know it works, why don't we just increase the number of women everywhere and we will see, we will probably have a good effect. I don't, many people may not care so much about why this effect occurs. But I think that at the very least, explaining why has implications for the extent to which this beneficial will effect will last over time. Right, because of course, if you just suggested that one possible explanation is that women engage in less corruption because they're less networked, because they're not part of the traditional crony or corrupt networks, one might worry that over time the effect will dissipate and that there will no longer be a correlation between gender and being enmeshed in these corrupt networks that women will instead of cleaning up the system, that they will just get sucked into the crisis. That would be a fair way to characterize the concern Right, here. exactly. We just did a paper on that, exactly. And I think that if we believe that women are socialized into having a stronger demand for anti-corruption, we would expect that as women become more networked, they will become also more effective in reducing corruption. They would know how to work the system to make the system work to reduce corruption. But if, if the reason is that women are simply marginalized and prevented from participating, you would expect perhaps that an increased access to these networks by women might actually lead to the effect being weakened over time. And that has dramatic implications for the extent to which this actually can work as a partial solution or a partial way to contain uh, some forms of corruption. And we also have evidence that, that it is indeed difficult for women that fail to adapt to the corrupt system to become re-elected because you tend to get a lot of political enemies that also are very powerful. Marginalization theories would suggest then that women are excluded from participating in corrupt transactions. But the reason why uh, this may lead to a weakening of the effect of women in office over time could be that, that women are failing to adapt to the corrupt system may simply not be re-elected. So that's this actually a natural point to transition from our general discussion of the topic to your specific research. So you referenced some recent research that you've done on this topic. I know this is something you're going to be working on for the next three years, so you obviously have not yet really gotten as far as you want to, but, but could you share a little bit uh, more specifically, the projects that you've done so far on this topic, either ones that you've completed or ones that are substantially far enough along that you would feel comfortable sharing some of the preliminary findings. So uh, as you just said, most of what we know about this topic, most of our data, though not all of it, is based on these big agri-correlations, and this poses some problems because there are a variety of explanations for why the correlations might exist and the policy implications that would follow very substantially, depending on which of those explanations or which mix is, is correct. So what are some of the specific research projects that you are currently pursuing or, or, or plan to pursue to try to nail down more precisely what the mechanisms actually are? 
So we have this three-year program on women representation and corruption, where we are developing RD designs to get a closer Sorry, what, regression what can... discontinuity design. So you might, many of our listeners will know what that means, but not everybody. So can you pause there, or maybe as you explain the process, the research project, right. unpack that a little bit so people understand what it is that you're doing? We are trying to get more closely into how women causes corruption and to find more reliable evidence for when and why women reduce corruption. And that's what we're doing in our three-year program. We, we have this a large-scale data collection at the regional level in Europe, uh, including survey experiment questions on gender and corruption. And I, we're also working in this survey to develop better measures of different forms of corruption. And hopefully we can get in this research program as doing both doing both the effect of women representation on corruption, but also to disaggregate and see if women representation may cause the reduction in certain forms of corruption uh, rather than others. You could imagine that women representation, if we believe in the political agenda theory where women would mobilize against corruption because they have greater caretaking obligations, you could imagine that perhaps corruption will go down in the traditional areas where women assume a lot of responsibility, such as education or healthcare. So we are analyzing in what sectors and in what and what forms of corruption that women actually reduce. So can you say a little bit more about how you do that exactly? What are you studying? So I take it so is it is it principally cross-national research of the sort that you discussed earlier, or are you looking uh, within a particular country or jurisdiction? What is the, many of our, our listeners might be wondering, how exactly can you nail this down? You can show the correlation, but as between these various theories that you and I were just discussing, what kinds of research strategies could help you say, oh, it's this one, not that one, or we can rule this one out and, le- and at least have narrowed it down to these others. So can you say a little bit more? And maybe you can just describe one, one paper or one project that you've done, but so we get a sense of what does that research look like? So I have on, one ongoing paper that is particularly excellent on France, uh, where we compare municipalities where the election between a male and a female mayor was very close. So in these close elections, when a female or a women candidate barely won over a man candidate, we can actually see that in these municipalities that otherwise are very similar to each other, we can see if the municipality where the women, woman mayor won, if corruption goes down. And we can also compare women incumbents to women newcomers and see if we can have this effect last over time. And in this particular study in France that we did, we actually found that it was only women that were newcomers in office that reduced corruption in their municipalities, while the women that were re-elected, the incumbent women, did not. They were had a similar corruption level as the male-run municipalities. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to clarify. What was the measure that you used for corruption? Because obviously you're not using France's general score on the Corruption Perceptions Index. It's all within France. So what was the measure that you used, the outcome measure for corruption in this study? The outcome measure was an objective measure of corruption risks. 
So this is actually not a perhaps not a direct measure of corruption, but it measures the share of single bidding in procurement. So this is a measure that has been developed not by me, but by other colleagues. And it looks at competitive markets. So it's the, the share of single bidding in otherwise competitive markets. You would exclude contracts in, in areas where we wouldn't expect any competition, right? So what we found then is that the women run municipalities had lower share of single bidding in public procurement. I see. So the idea is that in close elections, where you compare an election where a woman barely beat the opponent versus where a man barely beat the opponent, and you look at what happens afterwards, and where the just barely successful mayoral candidate was a woman, the percentage of single bidder contracts is lower than in those municipalities where a man won the election. But this is only true if it was the first term for the female mayor. If she gets reelected in a close election, there doesn't seem to be any difference. Is that is that a, do I have it basically right? Right. So that's what we find in this study. It's not published yet. It's under review. But so in a sense, it's a very depressing finding because we find this effect only for newcomer women. It is to some extent, I guess, support for the marginalization theory that women get increasingly networked as they become more senior in office. But it can also show that women that are that fail to adapt are simply not re-elected. So there may, may be a natural selection effect where the women that actually try to push an anti-corruption agenda uh, and challenges the system may not survive in office. Interesting. And just to clarify, so you mentioned before the regression discontinuity design. For those of our listeners who aren't familiar with that, I take it, this is why you look just at close elections, because if social scientists ruled the world and we were only, the only thing we cared about was gathering data that we could use to publish studies, we would want to randomize everything. We would want to randomly assign a female mayor or a, ma- a male mayor to a thousand different municipalities and see what happens. And they won't let us do that. So the idea is you can't just compare uh, municipalities with a male mayor versus municipalities with a female mayor because they might though they might just look different on a whole bunch of dimensions. This was the argument with respect to the cross-national data that you can't just compare shares of women in politics because there might be other things about those places that are different. So the, 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 the key idea here, and you can correct me if I, if I don't have this right, uh, but the key idea is that if you look just at close elections, elections that are decided by a couple of percentage points, that's basically a coin flip for all intents and purposes. If you won by one or two points or lost by one or two points, that's basically a coin flip. So it's almost like it was random, even though they won't let us make it really random. That's like the idea of social science to say that's close enough to random that we can just treat the outcomes as if they were caused by the fact that a woman or a man won. Do I have that right? Right, exactly. Great. So um, we're almost at the end of our uh, time here, and you've been very generous with your time, for which I thank you. Before we close, let me ask you to talk a little bit about the lines of research, not just your own, but maybe those that some of our listening in our listening audience who are themselves uh, up-and-coming scholars might might pursue. So having worked in this field for, for quite some time now and, and gotten a sense of what uh, lines of research seem fruitful and maybe which lines of research are kind of dead ends or maybe have been uh, overdone, what kind of advice would you give for 
I don't want to say young exactly because I don't want to be ageist, but let's say up-and-coming researchers looking for the topics that they ought to pursue. Given your experience, what kind of advice would you give? We're actually currently editing an Oxford handbook of quality of government with 40 chapters. And we made every author end their chapter by pointing out fruitful areas for future research. Great. So I'm in the spirit of, the, of that same thing, only now <laughs> the tables have turned and I can make you do what you made all your authors do. So I'm sure you've thought about this then. And I've had a clearer idea before, I guess, because now I'm fed with all these massive, I, massive number of ideas of things that you can do in different fields in the quality of government agenda. I know what I would like to do. Uh, I would like to focus more on the different types of corruption. I would want to figure out why women in office reduce corruption. Uh, I would want to know why democracy does not always work in reducing corruption. Because to me, that is a very counterintuitive finding. We have this massive evidence for what could be described as a J-shaped curve, where corruption actually seems to go up in newly democratized states. And some newly democratized states have higher levels of corruption than even authoritarian states by some measures, uh, at least of corruption. And I think that there needs to be a lot more work on in understanding why there this is so. We have a lot of plausible explanations. We have reasons to believe that not everybody demands anti-corruption. You're stuck in loyalty or patronage networks. You may not have the agency to, to demand accountability. State capacity may not be high enough. You may have democratized before you had, had state capacity, and state capacity might be necessary for democracy to reduce corruption. And there are a range of possible reasons why democracy sometimes seems to do a poor job. But I think that we need to focus much more on explaining why that is than showing this aggregate level finding. And we need to also understand if, if this problem is going to be solved by time. Uh, we know that many of the least corrupt countries in the world today are democracies. So democracy clearly does something, uh, or, or there's reason to believe that it might do something. But we still need to know how to make newly democratized states perform better, because it's extremely important for the legitimacy of the democratic systems in the eyes of the electorate. Great. Thank you very much. I think that that message is an important one and reminds us of not only of substantive topics that we need to be looking into, but also uh, why this work is so important. So I really appreciate your taking the time uh, to talk with me and with our listening audience today about the important work that you're doing at the Quality of Government Institute. And I look forward to continuing to follow your research in months and come. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you want to help us out, leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. It makes it much easier for others to find the show.